This podcast is brought to you by Focal. For over 35 years, Focal has been designing and handcrafting world-renowned products in the hi-fi, automotive, and professional audio industry. Driven by a quest to push the boundaries of acoustical technology, their pro monitors are a true testament to Focal's passion for excellence. Learn more at Focal.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. Any of us who record rock music are likely aware of Glenn Johns. If you don't know his name, you know his work. Johns' legacy in the recording studio spans many years and includes some of the best groups of all time. In the 60s, he tracked seminal works for the Rolling Stones, The Who, The Small Faces, The Creation, and The Kinks. He even worked with the Beatles near the end of their career. He has produced and engineered Led Zeppelin, The Eagles, Bob Dylan, The Clash, and more recently, Band of Horses, Ryan Adams, and Patty Griffin. Without question, Glenn Johns is the sound of a large portion of rock radio and most of our record collections. We visited Glenn at his beautiful home in the country south of London and met a gracious host happy to give us a tour of the gardens and a few hours of his time. When you were working on the book, was there, were there times that you felt like saying something and you just kind of realized how you felt? I mean, you're opinionated. No. Yeah. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, no, I mean, of course, the, I, wrote, I wrote to get out of my system a screed of stuff that was um, not particularly complimentary, and yeah. I took it away. Yeah. Um, realizing very swiftly that that shouldn't be what the book, airing your dirty laundry in public is not really what the book should be about yeah. at all. Um, so I took pretty much everything out. Yeah. Which I'm glad I did. You know, yeah. I don't regret any of it. We had that with Phil Brown's book that we put out, you know, and there was some stuff where, you know, people actually sent it. We were, there were some things where he was airing a little bit and um, people would send us an email like, oh my gosh, you know, that was me and that was... A, and, and he had some people come to him and just talk to him about what had happened 30 years ago or something. But it was, you know, it's one person's perspective and another person's well, perspective. My, the, as far as I'm yeah. concerned, if I, if I say anything negative about anybody, um, it's a bloody good reason. <laughs> I, I'm, right, I, I'm right. Not, you know, and if they, if they hear it, or, and very good, I'll say it to them. But I mean, if, if, they, if they read it or hear it and they're upset by it, tough, because yeah. that's life. But I don't think it makes good reading for, mm-hmm. for anyone, uh, as, as somebody, a punter reading the book. I don't think it's good to sit there and hear someone waffle on in, in a negative way. Yeah. So I made the book as positive yeah. as I could. Yeah. Uh, and that's how I felt. And yeah. you know, I left all the positive stuff in, basically. How did you feel about the reaction to the book, you know, at the end of the day? I, I'm completely blown away, to be honest. I had no idea that it would be as popular as it, as it is. It's doing really well, apparently. I don't know what the sales are, but it's doing yeah. great. Good. It's been a really good reaction to it. And it, initially, it was very strange f- for me to even accept the fact that anybody was treating it like a book. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it sounds sort of a, the seriousness like of the false book. modesty, but it's the, that's the actual truth of it. You know, it's, it, yeah. it's very strange. I'm used to it now, but, it, but at the beginning, it was oh, blinding. You know? <laughs> yeah. I haven't found out yet, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this is a crazy question, but has anyone optioned it? Would there ever be a possibility of a movie based on? But, but this? Also, there's been a lot of talk, and in fact, yeah. um, um, Ethan and I and have already started on a documentary. Oh right. Uh, based loosely on the book itself. Yeah. It, it can't be. It, it's not about me. It's it's about the era, which is what the book was supposed to be. Absolutely. About. Yeah. yeah. So yes. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the near the end of the book, you talk about this was an era. This is, I was really lucky to be part of this, yeah. what happened this time. How do things look to you these days with the music industry what you, and the recording, especially our end of it? To be honest with you, I'm so far out of touch now because yeah. I don't work very much. And when I do, I go in with blinkers and do exactly what I always did. It's not, you know, it's not like I'm looking to learn any new technique or anything. Pro Tools certified. 
<laughs> I, I don't. I have no. You know. I don't. I won't. I won't. I won't have a screen in my control room yeah. of any sort. Um, so I'm not. I'm not terribly qualified. I don't. I've lost touch a bit. I. I obviously. I talk to people when we're like Ethan yeah. and I've been talking about it a lot. And part of the film that we're making, obviously, we're gonna. We're gonna try and go up to date as to where things are and why and how. And so we're talking to people you know who are in the business now. Right. So as far as I'm concerned, um, I think it's rather sad that the digital age has taken over to the extent that it has in just about every respect the internet and the Obviously there are massive benefits. Um, and I, I, did, I did an interview on Friday and the, 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 the same question was asked. And I, I am now where my mum and dad were with me. So my mother and father didn't understand one note of any piece of music I was listening to, or, <laughs> or the way that people dressed, or the way they behaved, or anything. You know, it was right. completely alien to them. And I'm, I'm right where well, they were. <laughs> so it's normal. It's nothing. Yeah. I don't feel upset or anything else. Oh yeah. Sure. I, I feel a responsibility of sorts, as I'm sure, obviously you do. You and me doing what you're doing. Yeah. To encourage the young of today and, and hopefully pass on a little of the knowledge I've got um, so that at least yeah. that way of recording is still made available. It's very rare that anyone, right. I mean, most kids wouldn't know how to record more than one instrument at a time, which is ridiculous. Would you ever think of writing a book that was more technically oriented? Yes, I've been yeah. approached to do that, in fact, but I think it would more likely be a pamphlet than a book. <laughs> I don't think there's quite enough for a book, to be honest. Oh, are you sure? Yeah, pretty much. I don't know. I, 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 I've never really thought tremendously about the way I work or, you know, I just sort of got on with it. And I've probably forgotten more of what I've learned over the years than I can remember now. Um, we did, anyway, it's been discussed for some years now. And, and, yeah. um, I might do it. I don't know. I've, I'm, I don't know that I want to do another book, to be honest with you. I thought yeah. that one was enough, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I, I might do a DVD. I think that actually might be better. Right, something more of a hand. Well, at least, you know, yeah, it, it, you can actually demonstrate. It's, mm-hmm. you, you can't always put down in words easily. You know, it's re- describing sound or whatever is not. Yeah. It's not easy to do. You must know that because you do it all the time. Dancing about architecture or whatever, the whole quote. The writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, I think it's, it would be a lot easier to demonstrate what yeah. well, so you're, you're one of the few people after Bloomline to have a, a mic technique <laughs> with yeah, their name affixed to it, right? <laughs> yeah, which, 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 which 99% of the, of the representations of, of are complete nonsense. It's I love that. Someone's, <laughs> someone else's idea of what my mic right, right. is. So that's why yeah. I wrote about it in the book. It's the only technical thing in my book. I noticed Because that. I thought, well, at least if I'll put that straight. Yeah. So, my friend uh, David in in uh, Cleveland had you come by their school, the Tri C College, Cuyahoga College, and demonstrate that at the studio. Exactly, there. and somebody yeah. filmed it. Yeah, yeah, and I've heard that that's like the best learning, okay. the way, best way to really learn it. Yeah, that's on, yeah. on YouTube. Yeah, I didn't know yeah. anyone was filming it. Little bastard. Anyway, <laughs> someone did, right? So, someone you can't do anything kids. anymore. With that no, I know. I'm, now, I'm, <laughs> now I'm aware. It's a bit late now. Yeah, but I think that would be. I mean, even just like obviously demonstrating things like that because he yeah, said absolutely one of the things David said to me was that he's like he's not taking the measuring tape and going for the snare you know the- look here you go <laughs> when I was a kid and I was learning I was a tape op the studio that I worked at was the only independent studio in the United Kingdom that had its own remote gear so we did quite a lot of classical recording you know mm. symphony orchestras and stuff we'd go out take gear out yeah. And set up in a in a venue somewhere and record. And um, I'll never forget. I can't remember who the engineer was, which is terribly sad. But it's neither here nor there, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I was a I was a junior, and I I slaved my ass off from very early in the morning setting up the symphony orchestra. It was probably the LSA or something like that. Yeah. Remember. And um, so I all the chairs were at the music center, and. Uh, now it comes to miking it. And I looked at this guy and I said, how on earth, because I was so green, I was a kid, I was 17 or something. Now what? You know, how do you, how many, what, what are we at? What? 100 mics. So, he, so he just looked at me and he said, listen, 
There's nothing complicated about it. It's all common sense. Yeah. Miking is common sense. He said we could easily do this with two mics in stereo, and it would be great. So I thought about it, and he said, "Yeah, if you think about, it, if you, if you know the pattern of the microphone, mm-hmm. what the microphone that you're using is actually seeing, and then you figure out the distance that." Uh, you apply what it's seeing, the, the angle of the capsule to the distance away it is, you'll know how, how what it's going to cover. Right. Said it's, and it's just, it's common sense. <laughs> Which of course it was, and we put, I don't know, half a dozen mics up probably, maybe not even that, I can't remember now. Right. But we very rarely used more than that. Um, and I, that was the best lesson I was ever taught. And so I went back to the studio and I got the literature that came in the boxes for all the microphones. And I studied the patterns of all the mics. Right. I, most engineers now would not have a clue what a 67 is uh, seeing act- accurately. Like it's, yeah, exactly. Uh, because they've never looked at the diagram. And, and, and that, if you, if you know, again, it just, it's nothing really clever about it. It's just common sense. <laughs> and so if you go out into the room, if you're, whatever it is you're yeah. recording, whatever instrument you're recording, uh, and you're impressed by the sound that you're hearing, which is hopefully the idea, uh, from the musician, then your job is to try and capture that sound. Right. Unfortunately, now, that very rarely happens. It's, first of all, engineers very rarely even go out into the room. Right. Uh, they might send their, their, engine, their second out there to move the mic or whatever, it's not doing it themselves. Yeah. <laughs> if there's a problem, if they lift the fader up and the sound isn't, what they want, they'll immediately try and get clever and reinvent the wheel by employing techniques in the control room to get the sound right, rather than going out and listening to what the guy's giving him in the first place. Because right. it won't be what he's hearing in the room, almost certainly anyway. Right. I mean, I could ramble on for hours. Oh, I know. But, but, I yeah. know. but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. You, okay, so yeah. I'll shut up. because you. No, know no, no. <laughs> well, you will. <laughs> I'm not learning anything, Glenn. I'm here to pick your brain. I need to be a better engineer. <laughs> no, but I think also you mentioned earlier, it's instinct. When, we, when we're good at this, something you hear what's happening, you hear what's, what's coming through the mics, and you walk in the room and you listen, and you, you know what to do. Well, that's, you know? that's because I've done it for 50 years. And, right. um, and for 30 of those years, it was pretty much six, six days a week. So... <laughs> And in, in the early days, it was three sessions a day, different musicians. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, not, nothing like today. Right. So the massive learning curve in the late 50s, early 60s, when I was learning and, and got my hands on the console. Yeah. Um, everything was live. Everything was in mono. The client would leave after a three-hour session with four songs finished. Mm-hmm. Done. And you had to be on your toes. You know? Yeah. Um, so it's a great way to learn, you know, great way to learn. And it, I still hold that method of recording dear to my heart. And of course, multi-track recordings helped us all tremendously to fiddle around afterwards and all this. <laughs> but to me, t- t- delaying decisions to the end of the, end of the process is absurd. And, yeah. and the biggest time and money waste uh, altogether, in my view, that, that can possibly be. And I know that it's gone even way beyond that, where I've left off with 24 track. Uh, um, yeah, you it's gone completely absurd. 300 tracks. No, well, no, it's just, <laughs> it's just, exactly. So it's just absurd. So, so frankly, it just, all it means to me is that the frank, people don't really know what the fact they're doing and they're incapable, no, they don't. And, and they're incapable of making a decision. And that's, yeah. it's absurd. Net result is, if something is pondered over and farted around with to the extent that it is capable of being done now digitally mm-hmm. in particular, the music becomes clinicised beyond belief. Yeah. And it doesn't really have, it loses a massive element of substance as a result. To me, yeah. music, with Ethan and I had this conversation yesterday, music is, is an emotion, it's, it's, it's an emotive experience to play it, perform it, and it's certainly an emotion, emotive experience so listen to it. Yeah. The performance of a piece of music by more than one person should be an interaction between those people. Right. It should breathe between whoever it is playing. If you overdub something, the person overdubbing can respond to what's gone down already, 
but it doesn't affect it other than adding another layer of sound to it. Yeah. So what's happened now is that ev almost everything seems to me to be recorded one instrument at a time. And some people are brilliant at that, I'm not saying they're not. Yeah. Uh, and the end results are then farted around and fiddled around with to such an extent that it, it takes the, all the human element out of it. And some of the best records that were ever made have mistakes and then and they, the tempo changes and every, you know, but it's all nothing too horrendous, but but it's it's all part of the process. And ha, yeah. and what wins or won on those performances was the fact that there was an emotive content between the people playing it, right. and that made this little magic bloody sound that we are still listening to today from nineteen sixty one or two right. or whatever it was. Right. Those records are all all hold water in some way. Right. And I believe that's the reason why. I mean, there are lots of other reasons too, but that, I feel very strongly about that. Obviously, it depends on the music. Absolutely. But to me, the, that is essential for, for the performance of a piece of music to work for me. Right. When you, when you work with an artist these days, like say Ryan Adams or, or a Band of Horses or someone, do you have discussions beforehand to say like, this is how I see us working on the record? Oh, absolutely. The yeah. reason why anybody would want to work with me is because they know the way I work. And, right. um, oh, completely. I'd never. <laughs> equally, if, it, if somebody that I, I really wanted to work with wasn't happy about that aspect, I'd try and meet them halfway you know, mm -hmm. the, because I wanted to work with them. I'm not completely sh shuttered and closed. Yeah. And there've been, obviously, there have been loads of cases where I've, where I've been forced into a situation where I've had to build stuff. But right. I don't think it makes for great records at the point. Yeah, well. <laughs> and, and there are certain musicians, um, oh, Joe Satriani is a classic guy, mm -hmm. I made an album with Joe, and Joe previously had always had massive control over pretty much every note that was played by everybody. Right. Very, very strict about who exactly what was played. Yeah. And um, he made great records, he made a fantastic record with my brother, in fact. I yeah. can't remember what it's called, a brilliant record. With the Bissonette brothers on, on mm -hmm. bass and drums, brilliant, <laughs> brilliant record. Right. So then he comes to me, and I said, "Well, okay, with, um, I'm not particularly interested in you disappearing up your own ass, uh, <laughs> fiddling around. I, what I'd like to do is put you in a room with musicians that I consider to be as good as you, mm. uh, and I want you to play the guitar, and that's it. And um, they they'll join in, you know. Yeah." Uh, and he wasn't quite sure if he was going to be able to do it, but he did it, bless him, and, and he did it brilliantly. Yeah. He, he, uh, he's gone back to, we only made the one record, so he's, got, <laughs> he's immediately gone back to the way he's always worked. And obviously that's been hugely successful for him. I'm not... Yeah. However, I know for a fact that he enjoyed the experience, and there, that was him meeting me with my suggestion, and actually right. very difficult for him to do, but he's gone back to the old way and a good yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I don't really know why I talked about that. Really, it was a bit of a no, it's, well, like yeah. Belly's Belly's record that you did, King, was one where I know you guys talked about um, yeah. playing very live yeah. as opposed to. I mean, Ryan's record is is completely. He sings. I mean, the, yeah. every there's not a there's, strings were overdubbed or sure. maybe another keyboard part or something like that. But yeah, and maybe he might overdub an electric guitar part or something. But right, but. We could easily have released everything we cut without one single overdub on it. And you really know if it's happening. It feels well, right. Well, it, it, of course. It sounds yeah. better for all the musicians <laughs> if the singer's actually giving you a performance yeah. while they're playing, because they react to it. That's my point. Yeah. I find myself fighting with that all the time now. It'd be like, well, we're, you know, I had a band send me the rhythm section to start laying down the song. Yeah. And I'm like, where's the rest of the band? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do I produce this? Yeah. Yeah. I don't even have a demo. <laughs> no, no. I mean, there's, 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 something, there's something quite fun about, about building something because it's, it's like being given a couple of bricks and then the next day two more arrive. And... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but, yeah. And you see what it's you end true. up with. But it's different. It is different and it can be fun. But I think yeah. people waste so much time. The very, yeah. the very, look, I've ever done, done pretty, probably on every record I've ever made. It's right. something, it been percussion or a vocal backing or, Somebody wanted to do more than one thing in the band, you know, they want to play another instrument, you can't play two at once. <laughs> and lots of times, obviously, the, um, the vocalist needs to become more familiar with the song to, to, to enable him to sing it the way he really wants, so yeah. he'll do a guide of some sort. But 
it made a huge difference if he wasn't there at all, if there wasn't any kind of structure to the, right. to the melody that they were, everyone was hearing in the cans. Massive difference. Got yeah. to be. Got to be. I know. It's, 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 I mean, time marches on and, it, and it's progress in big quotes, but it's a, a lot of changes that I, I feel have, de- have been detrimental as well to certain recording scenarios. Yeah. You know? And it, I, you hate to be like, that's not the way to make a record because there's a million ways to make a Well, no, no, I'm just talking from my but perspective. I, I totally... I, I, yeah. I respect all the other genres. I'm not saying I don't. I yeah. don't particularly like the results, but I, yeah. I accept the fact that that's just me being a boring old fart. You know? <laughs> Things move on. It's fine. You know, good yeah. luck to them. Um, yeah. and, and there are certain instances where some of the records are, I actually think are really clever. Yeah. I, I'm just talking about don't let's lose sight of, right. of what it, you know, the, the, I don't know if I said this in the book or not, I can't remember. I didn't, I should have done. The recording process was invented originally to capture the performance of a piece of music. Right. That's what it was there for. Yeah. That was why it came about. Exactly. Unfortunately now, it's sort of the tail's wagging the dog a bit. You know? <laughs> People don't write songs the same way because of the recording process, and they certainly don't make the records because of the same way because of the recording process right. it's sort of taken over and uh, some people would, would argue well it's given us far more opportunities to be inventive and sonically inventive and all the rest of it okay don't argue with that it's fine with me just not my cup of tea <laughs> I felt like hopefully a lot of people in the music and recording community are starting to see how important a producer is because a producer is someone who can watch over and guide the process, whether the, and keep the technology from, you know, keep the focus on the prize, so to speak. You know, you know what I mean. Like yes. a lot of people start working. But, as, but equally, I think a lot of the producers are blamed because they use the technology, right? And introduce the technology without without well, the artist even knowing half of it. Well, the so artist picking the right producer. Yeah. Well, then, <laughs> let's get to that. That's yeah. an interesting point. Right. Um, I think that most of the job any artist ever has is picking the right producer. Yeah. I think it's incredibly, I wouldn't want to be an artist for all the tea in China. Right. Uh, if I wasn't experienced uh, or hadn't, hadn't actually had the opportunity to work with the individual before or would have seen them work or whatever. Right. It's all very well somebody having a reputation and you liking the records that they've been involved with. Right. But you never really know as an artist exactly how much or to what extent, uh, what sort of influence, what type of influence right. the producer had on, on the record. I've made loads and loads of records where I was just lucky to be in the room, you know, no question about <laughs> it. Uh, and uh, I, I wouldn't want to take any credit at all. You know, the right. artist t- takes the bloody credit. Right. And there are very few where that isn't true, actually, if I'm honest. Right. But on the other hand, like when you were working with Led Zeppelin early on, you felt like you were kind of sidelined credit-wise. Yes, you know? I was. Um, I've got over that. It's fine. I know. Well, yeah. <laughs> fine. It's been a while. I hope so. No, no, absolutely. Um, and looking at it from Jimmy Page's perspective, uh, I, underst- I understand why he, to an extent, why he he felt the way he did, and that was because they were so well rehearsed when they arrived at the studio. It wasn't like I'd had any influence over <clears throat> the basic arrangements of the songs. Right. So I certainly couldn't take the credit, and frankly, wouldn't want to. I mean, it was. Pretty astonishing stuff yeah. and, and innovative beyond, beyond belief. And I, I certainly wouldn't want to take a, a song team of credit for any of that. Right. All I did was record was what was going on. I had a couple of production. I thought I was producing it. So I was in there <laughs> with a few ideas, you know, yeah. a couple of suggestions here and there. But I would, you don't tell that lot. I wouldn't dream right. of it. No, no, no. Well, you, in, in the, especially in the UK, you were really one of the first people to sort of transition from engineer to producer and the freelance as well, right? I was the first freelance engineer in the world, I think, right. for some years, actually. Yeah. Very strange. Don't know why that was. But anyway, <laughs> well, uh, I may have been. I don't, I don't, probably, I've never really paid much attention to it. Yeah. But, but being the, but making that transition, being seen as an engineer and then saying, well, you know, at times I am producing. Sometimes people get, the, they get confused about what, what, a, what is a producer? The ultimate question, which is always impossible to answer. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, 
Hold on one second. <laughs> I, in the preface of my book, mm -hmm. I can't remember what I said. But, uh, someone asked me, this is how the book starts. Yeah. Someone asked me the other day, what exactly does a producer do? My answer was, you just have, you just have to have an opinion and the ego to express it more convincingly than anyone else. <laughs> and every time I start another project, I wonder if I'm going to get found out. And that's pretty much how I feel about it. I mean, that's... Yeah. That's, I mean, there are so many different types of producer, right. as you know. Yes. All of them, most of them I ever work with, specialised in one aspect of production or two, mm -hmm. but very rarely all. But the one aspect that they specialised in was strong enough to give them the gig. Yes, they all had an opinion and they were capable of uh, pronouncing it <laughs> in a convincing way. Right. Uh, some guys were not musical, really, but they had a good idea about song picking. Mm -hmm. uh, Mickey Mouse was a classic example of that. Yeah. You could pick a song and put it with the right artist. I did one, I did engineered a session for Mickey Mouse years and years and years ago, and he read the paper. Yeah. He didn't say a word. There were other guys who were all over it like a hot cloth, you know, interfering <laughs> on, on every level. Wrong. <laughs> There's somewhere in the middle. The idea is yeah. to provide an environment for the artist that, that allows them to be who they are and, and create in a, in a happy and healthy way. Right. Uh, and my responsibility has always been for the artist and it's their career on the line every time they go in the studio to make a record. I'm very much aware of that. Yeah. And I try and find out from them without really being obvious exactly what they want from me, to what extent. Yeah. Um, and I provide it. And a lot of the acts, the bands that I've worked with, different individuals in the band require different things. Never mind about the whole band. Right. And that's a learning curve. You step into the room. It's a massive learning curve. First day. But, but being an engineer for so long, yeah. I, working with, I don't know how many different producers, but lots right. and lots and lots, I learned a tremendous amount from right. what I liked about what they were doing and what I didn't like, what I didn't respect. When you work on, on stuff lately, what kind of album projects intrigue you? And, and what is it that makes you want to work on a record with somebody at this point? Nowadays, it's, it's, um, it's based on their personality as much as anything else, obviously, and their musical ability. Yeah. Uh, my, my feeling about working has never really changed. If, if, if I'm intrigued by what the artist is doing, initially musically, um, then I'll meet them, and if I get on well with them, then we're off. You know, it's never changed. I mean, the last record I made was quite a while ago. It was with Ben Tench. right? And I did that record for nothing, along with everyone else. Everybody did, really. Yeah, just because you knew it'd be good, a good, well, good experience. It was, it was bloody marvelous. We had a great time. Yeah, yeah. it feels like it. People were queuing up to play on it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So that gives you an example. Yeah. It isn't, it, particularly well, for some years, it hasn't been a, a question of um, fortunately of being terribly worried about income or whatever else. Just, well, I've yeah. never been motivated by the possibility of the buck at the end of the day. Right. Um, I've been very fortunate to have hit on some artists that have created a reasonable, reasonable sales. Which, right. But that wasn't the reason I got involved. Right. Well, one of, one of my favorite records you ever worked on was. Of course, who's next? Mm. And uh, and I know that had the the origins as the Lifehouse yeah. story, and, yeah. and Pete Townsend is someone who comes in with things very well demoed, and you know, as soon as we know, <laughs> and uh, and you had to take something that was sort of huge and conceptual and just tear it down and make a single album out of. What was it like, kind of taking the reins or proposing just to just record the songs, and then guiding that album? Um. I, I don't have to tear anything down. It, yeah. From Pete's perspective, he'd written the music for a film and the film right. wasn't going to happen. So yeah. it would have been ridiculous if the music had gone to waste as a result of the film not happening. Right. So it was quite, it was an obvious thing to point out the fact, well, we should just make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the songs are good. Um, 
it wasn't a problem at all. It was yeah. it was a it was very very easy to do. It um, the demos were so self explanatory. He he's just extraordinary. He's yeah. he's a very good engineer, apart from anything else. I know. Um, <laughs> I think probably the major problem that we were confronted with was some of the grooves were were not necessarily typical of what Keith and John would play. Right. And I, I felt that they needed to be slightly more conventional in the way they approached a couple of the songs. And um, so that was what I proposed. I'm, like on which material? I don't remember which songs. Right, yeah. I'll have to listen yeah. to them. Listen but just to, to kind of slow down a little bit on Keith's fills? Or no, well, it wasn't even slow down. It was, yeah. it was just being more conventional in the way the groove was played. Right. Not about the fill. Okay, gotcha. You're never going to stop. Okay, well... <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I used to take half his kit away so he couldn't hear it because it was sort of an instant reaction. I've always been amazed at how, and, and, and using your kind of typical amount of mics and stuff, how well you really hear the, all the activity on his kit, you know, on that album especially, and the power of it. It's like, well, the reason you hear the I power of it and the activity <laughs> of it is because of the mic technique. Yeah. That's exactly it. Simplicity, yeah, Larry. Simplicity. Yeah, but if I don't put all those mics on the toms, yeah. then the drummers come in and they go, "I can't hear the high tom enough." Well, you tell him to hit it hard. Uh, Real simple. Uh, Real simple. I know. Very, very simple. Well, I wish these people could do that sometimes. <laughs> could do what? Hit it harder. Listen to instructions. <laughs> oh, well, if they won't listen to instructions, then it's their problem that they can't hear the fucking tom-tom. <laughs> Look, I think know. about it. Think I about it. it. This is being recorded. You can play this for the next fucker that tells you. <laughs> think about it. Drums are designed, obviously, to project sound. Right. right? They're, they're meant to be heard from a distance of right. a few feet or even further, actually, depending on the acoustics of the room. Right. But they're designed to project. Yeah. So the sound of each drum actually comes into fruition a good three or four foot away from the actual drum, if you think about it, or maybe right. two foot six. Depends how hard it's being hit, I suppose. Right. Same with any instrument, amplifier, acoustic guitar, strings, whatever you're talking about. Nothing, no musical instrument's invented to be heard from six inches or three inches or two inches away, right? So the minute you put a microphone right up against the skin of a drum or a microphone right up against the whole of, a, of an acoustic guitar or whatever else. Right. You've got a problem because it doesn't sound like it's supposed to. Now, maybe you don't want it to sound like it's supposed to, so that's a whole other thing. But let's say right. we're trying to get a really good drum sound. Yeah. Um, one of the, I don't know about you, but one of the reasons I, I well, I've got sessions is that one of the reasons I would book a particular drummer is not just because he can play well, but because of the sound he gives me. Right. The way he tunes his kit, it's very much part of who he is. Same with any, any guitar player, whatever it is, they, if they get a really good sound and they have a good comprehension of sound for different styles of music or whatever else, that th you want them in the room. You don't want to have to start telling somebody what sort of sound you require necessarily. You want their instinct to it, you know. Right, oh yeah. Right, so, oh God, I'm, I'm drifting off into bloody... Perspective. Okay, so no, here we okay. are. You've got a you've got a microphone up that's an inch away from a yeah. from a drum, so it sounds like shit. It's got to sound like shit. It's got, it doesn't sound like the drum. Right. So you then have to get clever and and <laughs> fart around with it to try and make it sound like a drum. Right. So you're in trouble, but you've created the problem yourself by putting the microphone there. Right. Yes. Okay. So you multiply that by twelve or however many microphones right. we use on on drums now. You've got phase problems, you've got, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And, and the sound of the drummer, his sound, yeah. has got nothing to do with what you're hearing at all. One. Right. Two, the dynamics in what he's playing goes immediately. Mm -hmm. So basically, it's an insult to the drummer. So you could say to him, it's an insult to you for me to put a microphone that close to your fucking drum yeah. and for me to mix it where, you, where I think it should be Balance with the rest of your kit. So this is it's your job to provide the dynamics of what you're playing, right. not mine. Right. So it's in your best interest for me to mic it from a distance, right. and then I can hear accurately the sound of your kit. And if the snare drum doesn't sound right for the song or whatever else, yeah. that's because it's the wrong snare drum. 
it's all it's tuned it isn't tuned correctly for the song or whatever else so it's right. his fault not yours <laughs> and also that, i mean i i assume you agree with me our job is to go in and say i have this change the snare drum let's get this tune up let's change it out yeah, let's get yeah. the things that are feeling right you know Tune your drums. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, if it's a band, you've got, you can't, yeah. you're not choosing the drummer, he's in the band. Right. So you help him. I mean, uh, you know, you, you might suggest the way you think the drum should sound and we'll see how good it is. But to be honest with you, yeah. that, that you could go, we could talk about this for hours. It, <laughs> it's always just, of course, it's, uh, again, I've been really lucky. Yeah. How the hell do you think, you know, everyone goes on about my drum micing technique. You know the story of John Bonham. Well, hello, you can't. <laughs> this man got the greatest drum sound you've ever in your yeah, life. Yeah. yeah. And if watch, it hadn't have been John on that session, I probably wouldn't have ever discovered that particular method of stereo marking. You know? Really, just because of his. Yeah, it was because it's so fucking amazing. Yeah. So when you were standing in a in a studio a live room, he's playing. You're just like, it's here. Oh no, I'd I'd always used the positioning of the microphones the right. way I had. The, right. What, what happened on the Led Zeppelin session was uh, prior to that session, I'd always done drums in mono like everyone else. Mm-hmm. What have been your technique there? Like, well, it's the same, the same mic setup, yeah. identical. Yeah. But what I discovered on the Led Zeppelin session was putting one microphone on one side and one on the other and creating stereo drums, which right. I right. What do you? How do? You, how do you uh, feel about Not your totally. brothers? Your brothers work <laughs> with them after you. Um, also, sounds fantastic. You know, was it fun, uh, was it fun to listen to his perspective on recording? Um, if I'm if I'm really honest with you, I, I've never have. Yeah. Never listened to him? No. Yeah. I've never put, I don't own a Led Zeppelin record. I don't own the one I did. So. Right. Just moved on. You yeah. were busy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about Andy's work in general, though? You, oh, genius. Some, you know, because it's... Genius. It's different than yours. Uh, oh, you know? brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. No question. Yeah. Much, much... He, he, he took what Led Zeppelin started, the heavy rock side of things, mm -hmm. and sailed off onto, into the sunset with it. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. I wouldn't know where to start. Were you, would you have ever guess that he would be following in your footsteps, so to speak? Oh, well, uh, were you guys on a similar track when you were young? Well, no, he was much younger than me. He was How much younger? Eight, eight years. Yeah. Years, maybe. A substantial amount when you were So he, when he was at school, I was doing the Stones, and, and yeah. he, he got interested in what I was doing. And then when he left school, I got him a job at Olympic right. as a trainee. Right. So yeah, it was pretty obvious he was going to yeah. follow in my footsteps. Very different sort of guy to me. Yeah. Completely different personality. Um, and astonishing engineer. Completely different approach to recording to me and everything, you know. I mean, yeah. there, perhaps there were similarities, but um, uh, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. I was talking to Phil Brown before we came out and, and uh, he had assisted with you like on some of the small faces sessions and, and stuff way back. And uh, he said he felt that the engineers that he learned the most from ever were Keith Grant and you, Yeah. you know, working at Olympic back then. That's the very nice. I liked him a lot. I yeah. probably still would have, I saw him. Yeah. Very nice young man. <laughs> he was young then. Yeah, he's not young now. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that would, that would make sense. Keith was doing a completely different type of material than me. Right, um, right. He was and a really fine engineer, Keith. Fabulous engineer. Yeah. Were there any engineers that you learned along the way? So you were mentioning the IBC and... Oh, well, there, and there, were, the there was a... When I started IBC in 59, the senior engineer, there was a guy called Eric Tomlinson, mm -hmm. who was an astonishing engineer. Absolutely brilliant. Um... And he, he, he left there and he went into film music and did really well. He, was, he did all the bomb stuff. And that, you know, yeah. Um, cool. <laughs> really brilliant. I yeah. learned more of him than probably anybody. And then, that, well, there were several. But um, yeah. we had a huge staff at IBC, actually, right. and they were all pretty damn good. There was a guy called Ray Prickett who, mm -hmm. who was really good. Um, and then there was a young guy called Terry Johnson who was younger than me. He left school illegally at 15. <laughs> True story. Yeah. He got a job at IBC yeah. at 15 years old. <laughs> so when I started, I was 17, I'd left school. Right. He was 16 and he was doing sessions. Wow. This is in 1959. 
That seems and crazy. he was just a complete natural. So he yeah. and I became really good pals. Yeah. And I seconded for him for a year or however long it was. We were sort of like a team. You know? Right. And between the two of us, we learned how to record loud, loud electric music. You know, right. Because no one had ever done it before. Right. I mean, you, people like you and Jeff Emmerich and everybody were on this cusp of like... You yeah, know, Jeff's how younger than me. I don't think Jeff was... He was probably still in short trousers. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> you could be right. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you, you're you looking at this this era when you're talking about, like, all of a sudden you got louder drums, louder guitars. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and also of... the music was different. And, and the senior guys at the uh, at the studio didn't understand it. They didn't want to know about it. Right. So we right. got the opportunity. Yeah. It was the right Thank time. Thank God. <laughs> the right time and the right place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, one of the early things that you really got heavily involved in was the Steve Miller band. Yeah. Looking back on that, how do you how do you feel about that, that kind of guiding you as a, becoming a producer more too? If I'm completely honest, I, I, I produced Steve Miller in 1967. That was the first album he made. Right. And probably for at least, well, three or four years before that, I'd been working with a lot of producers and I'd been contributing to the production of the record. Right. Um, quite happily. I, I was very happy to remain the being called the engineer. <laughs> so it wasn't that big a deal. Just, there just wasn't anyone else in the control room. <laughs> uh, and I, I was in the chair. So, so right. I could make suggestions directly to the artist rather than via the producer. Right. I, you know, previously I would be. I'd never dreamed of saying to the putting the key down and saying to the singer, "Well, maybe this isn't the wrong key or something." Like right. That. You right. Know, I'd, I'd say it to the producer, and he right, he right. passed it off. So that's polite. Proper, the yeah. proper way proper. to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, the transition was it was great. It was being like being let out of a cage because I had lots of yeah. ideas that I, I'd been saving, if you like. Yeah, I just I find that the. For the era and for you transitioning from engineer to producer, I just find that fascinating to me. And it just at that point, we hadn't seen a lot of people making that switch. No, in fact, up until that moment, it had never happened. And right. and engineers were just not considered to be anything other than that. And, and the idea of any of them becoming a producer was abhorrent to anybody. <laughs> and it only happened for me because of the situation with Steve Miller. He retained me to engineer his album. Right. And after a month of recording, we hadn't got anything. Right. He'd just been farting around. And so I, I went in and I just said, look, I'm not, I don't want to do it. I'm not, we've got two more weeks and I'm bored rigid. I'm wasting my time. I don't want to do anymore. I'm, I'm, this is my last session with you. Yeah. <gasps> Panic. So he said, well, what can I do? I said, well, you need, you need a producer. Somebody needs to take the reins here because it's right. just ridiculous. So he said, well, will you do it? I went, yep. <laughs> so <laughs> I got the job. I sort of talked myself into the job. And, and we made Children of the Future. Right. Having farted around for a month. We That's, actually cut those tracks into it. Right. Me. And what, did, what, what was the difference? I mean, what was, obviously, you're taking the reins and you're saying Well, the difference and... was sit down, play this, shut up, play the song. <laughs> That's the tape. Moving on. Had there, there were songs to play, but they just weren't getting done. They had songs to play, but the, he was experimenting and farting around it, but nothing ever really got. Yeah. The, the, there wasn't anybody in charge. Right, really. right. A couple of times in the book, too, you make a, uh, you talk about situations like the Satanic Majesties, you know, where it's kind of a mucking about session to a degree, and and there's a. A disparaging tone. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this comes up here again. Yeah. You know, I yes. mean, uh, it's interesting because I love Satanic Majesties, but the, the 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 long some of it is so fucking boring. But then Tell some of the songs are great. Boring for you to listen. To. Imagine how boring it was to sit there while they were farting around. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The Stones never ever recognized me, even after I'd become successful as a producer, and I had right. all kinds of you know stuff going on right they never thought of me as a producer I was, right. I was an engineer well, that's what I mean that's what I think that yeah. transition yeah, but even you know even even year, you know, years <laughs> later they never thought, saw me as a producer right which um, it's fine I understand it's okay yeah. it's part of human nature yeah. yeah well at least they didn't think of you as a tape off 
No, probably now they probably think of me even worse than that. (laughs) Even if someone says, you're just the engineer, Larry, I want to help guide the thing to be a better result. Of course you do, but if you're not being employed for that purpose, then you best keep your mouth shut because no people very often will feel you're interfering and you're out of order. And so, um, the the only you know I mentioned I was helping producers. I was making such. I would never do it if if I felt they didn't want to hear from me. You know, I mean, right, right. uh, But most of the people I worked with, we had a great relationship. We we mutual respect. Let's put it like that, and that's why they were working with me and. Um, why I was agreeing to work with them because I enjoyed their company and, and right. I thought they were really good at what they did. Can I ask you some technical questions? Of course you can. I don't know if I'll be able to answer them. I'm well, not very technical. More so on the overview, but a lot of the electric bass sound, you, the John Paul Jones, John Whistle, two of my favorite bass players, yeah. and the way that those sounds on, on the records you've done with them reproduce, well, the, you hear them on little tiny speakers, you hear them in a car, you hear, you know, you're... What was your technique of, of recording? No different to anybody else. The, the yeah. reason why the two examples you just mentioned sound like they do is because of John Paul Jones and, and John Edwards. Yeah. Nothing to do with me at all. <laughs> it's their sound. But what kind of miking and things would you use? Same mic like I used on everything. Everybody, Bill Wyman, the same mic like I used. <laughs> if you were a bass player now, I yeah. have the same It's almost certainly a 414. Yeah. I don't ever equal I don't touch the bass. It's a waste of time. <laughs> waste of time. Don't yeah. equalize on the bass. No, let him do it. Yeah. it comes, the bass is the most critical instrument of all, as you very well know, yeah. to touch. I'm, I'm a bass, bass player. So well, no, you are a bass player. <laughs> you like a bass player. Uh, well, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, uh, it, so, even, even obviously changing the sound from the amp is going to make a difference, but right. not a huge difference. The biggest difference is going to come from the instrument, the manufacturer, you know, the actual instrument itself, right. it's, it's inherent sound, and the way, the touch of the guy. And yeah. that's all I want to do. So I never, I never limit or, I, I never put anything on a bass. I put a microphone on the amp, yeah. and I lift the fader up, mate. And if it doesn't sound quite right, I'll talk to the bass player. Yeah, that's too easy of an answer. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, 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 I'm no. Sorry. No, no, you know no. What? My one of my favorite bass sounds for years and years yeah. and years was Paul's bass on Paperback Writer. Yeah, right. Astonishing. Yeah. So yeah. when I, years later, when I got to work with them, yeah. uh, I can't remember. We were cutting. She's so heavy. Mm-hmm. Okay, John Lennon song. Same. Yeah, yeah. And we're working at Trident Studios in London, and. For some reason, that sound came to mind, and that so I, I'd never asked Paul about anything with what they'd done in the past before. Yeah. So I said, "Okay, how'd you get the fucking bass sound on yeah. uh, on Paperback Writer?" So he thought about it, and he's, he he said, "Oh, we might well, the mic was about a couple of foot away from the cabinet, whatever the cabinet was, Fender." Probably. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was a '67. Well, I'd never used a '67 on bass. Oh, right. Okay, give that a go. And he thought it was. He probably probably wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> So I go through this whole thing. Like, okay, fair enough. If you're going to put a '67 on an amp, yeah. you, you, I mean, I would never put it any closer than that, depending on how loud the amp. Right. Um, I mean, Pete, I used to use on odd occasion. I'd use a '67 mm-hmm. uh, with his high watt stack, and I and yeah. I mic it from that distance so that the sound kind of develop. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're back to where we started. If it's a big amp, the sound's yeah. got to develop out of it. It's no yeah. point in miking up against the bloody cable. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I did this, I put through this whole yeah. thing, and we were all meticulous and everything. Didn't sound anything like paperback writer. And of course, the reason was the part was different, and he was playing it differently. Right. So, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> different song, different, different day. song, yeah. <laughs> same bass player and same bass, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so I failed. How do you run your career at this? Even, even becoming a freelancer early on, how does your career manage and work? I'm sorry. Pick the phone up. No. Yes. I'll have to learn this part. <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's always the thing of, you know, management, you know, engineer, producer, management. Bullshit. No, it's so, essential, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but, but now it's become essential because, and this, it's been that way for quite a while. You, you brought that up, and I was going to ask you about that, but like hating the, the, the music changing and, and, and also... Uh, Phil Brown said the same thing to me. I just hated the punk movement when it showed up. 
Yeah. You know, what what was it about it that... Well, it wasn't music, really. That's <laughs> what was wrong with it. Yeah. Nothing to do with music. I don't... I think it just more... Well, it had, the, the image was violence and yeah. sort of unpleasantness. But Unnecessary. Then you, then you did work with The Clash. Who I, know I did. You, you, and they really taught enjoyed. me a lesson. They taught me a lesson, a massive lesson. <laughs> uh, uh, listen, uh, believe it or not, I'm very blinkered. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's a great story, actually. Muff Wimmond, who was head of a and mm-hmm. Steve's brother Muff, who I've got a lot of time for. He's a really, really good guy. Legendary. He's, he's a really good guy. Yeah. So never done anything with him, never worked with, for him or anything. Yeah. So he calls me up out of the blue and says, Clash Album's just been delivered. It's not what we expected. Will you take a listen? We want it to be remixed. And I went, oh, you've got to be joking. Clash? He said, take a listen. Okay. So he sends me down this double album. Yeah. Rat Patrol from Fort Bragg or something yeah, they were yeah, calling yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've heard it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I listened to it. I thought, oh, this is really interesting. Right. It was self-indulgent and boring in parts and whatever else. But <laughs> there was a sense of humour there. And um, I thought I thought it was fascinating, actually. Yeah. So I said, okay, well, let me meet him. So they come and they arrive at my house. It's Joe and Cosmo Vinyl. And the manager, whose name I can't remember, he's a nice bloke actually. Very? Yeah, Ben. Yeah. Very nice fellow. Yeah. So they get out of the car, and this guy, Cosmo Vinyl, introduces himself. My name's Cosmo Vinyl. I thought, oh, fuck me. We're in trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> Cosmo fucking Vinyl. So, so, <laughs> sure. Yeah. And then Joe gets out. He's totally polite. So we have a cup of tea and we talk. And I'm won over instantly by Joe. He's just fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. So I agreed to do it. And I, I haven't had so much fun. I hadn't had so much fun in years actually doing it. He was brilliant. He was open to any suggestion. Right. He allowed me to rip it to pieces. I edited nine miles out of it. I, he, he didn't disagree with one thing that I wanted to do. He was just right. gung-ho with the whole thing. We, get, we became really good pals. Really great. It's brilliant. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. 